When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's podcast is part one with Joe Thomas from last year's Cool Clinic, which is the premier clinic for offensive line coaches. I had the opportunity to meet Bob Wiley at Lawrence First and Goal Clinic in 2021, and from there, he appeared on the podcast, and we made plans for the Cool Clinic to be delivered virtually during the pandemic. Speaking of Lawrence First and Goal, that is coming up this week, starting on the 3rd. Just an incredible lineup. Too many coaches to name. Need to go to lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com to see all the coaches and the different topics there. This has something for everybody on your staff, and it supports a great cause in funding pediatric brain tumor research and cancer services. So again, check that out at lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com. In the first half of this talk between... Joe Thomas and Bob Wiley, they discuss various aspects of pass protection. Joe's a future Hall of Famer, and he gives some insight that is useful for any offensive line coach and offensive lineman. I know this is one you will enjoy. Part two of it will be coming up tomorrow. So here's part one of Joe Thomas and Bob Wiley. Okay, our next, our next clinician, Joe Thomas. Joe, I had the pleasure of coaching Joe. We're a great professional uh, he's, he's, he's a, actually, he's a better person than he is a football player guy. Just so you guys will understand what I think about him. Okay. Uh, he prepared well, he is very knowledgeable in the game. Uh, he played many years. He, uh, he played 10,353 consecutive snaps. Nobody will ever break that record again. He's going to be a future hall of fame, first round ballot. I said, you know, I used used to kid with Joe, he used to say, you know, who's better, Anthony Munoz or Joe Thomas? And, you know, and they said, well, you know, Anthony's got the yellow jacket. I said, I said it's not the yellow jacket, right? It, it's the, anybody can buy a yellow jacket. It's when they give you the blue ring, Joe. That's, that's what's, <laughs> not many people get the blue ring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, without to do, we're, we're going to have Joe Thomas. And what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll ask him some questions and Joe, We'll, we'll go ahead and answer the questions and give you as much information uh, as he can. All right. So without the do, Joe Thomas. Hello to the guys, Joe. I know they'll be happy to see you. Yeah, Bob, I'm really excited to be here today. And I'm 
very thankful that you've asked me to come and share some wisdom and some knowledge and hopefully uh, give people a little uh, view into the twisted mind that we have and probably why we got along so well when you were coaching me in Cleveland because we saw the game a certain way and I think uh, it could be beneficial. So I think this is going to be a, a fun uh, little session here. It was, it was amazing working with Joe how we looked at the game almost identically the way we looked at it as, as a coach to a player and a player to a coach. It was really quite uh, enlightening for me. Okay. All right. You've seen a number of offensive linemen, you know, uh, in your time. What attributes uh, do the young players uh, make uh, when they come in to be successful? What do they need to get into the league to be successful? Well, having played 11 years for the Cleveland Browns, I think, one of the things that I really like to see with young players when they come in as undrafted free agents or draft picks is an ability to sit in a meeting room and listen to what they're being taught. And it doesn't really matter where they are from a skill standpoint or a technique standpoint, but they need to be able to hear the coaching or see it and to be able to go out in the field and to be able to replicate what you're asking them to do. You know, there's a lot of guys that are great athletes that, have this, this mind and body block where the things that they see and hear and they want their body to do, they can't get it to do it. And the guys that are the, typically the best professionals are the ones where you can tell them something like, hey, I want you to kind of put your hand a little bit more like this or in your past that I want you to turn your knee a little bit this way. And they're able to do that and replicate that with very little training and very little additional practice because that's how you get better as an offensive lineman. Like nobody comes out of the womb as a great offensive lineman because everything we do is unnatural, right? You're sprinting backwards in pass pro, and then you're going to try to stop a 300 pound man that's running at you full speed. Or in the run game, you're running like a gorilla with your legs wide apart, and you're trying to create force from the ground up through your feet. Like these are unnatural things that are not born, that you're not born with. Like it's, it's not like, throwing a football like everybody's been throwing baseballs and footballs since they were a little kid right and so it's a natural thing everybody's been running since they were two years old and so being a receiver and, and running and catching and being a quarterback and throwing the ball and being a defensive player tackling and wrestling like those are natural things that you've done your whole life but being an offensive lineman takes practice it takes repetition and it takes an ability to do something that's completely unnatural and make it second nature. And I think the most important part of that is being able to hear or see something and being able to replicate it. Because if you can't do that, I don't care how great of an athlete are, you are, you'll never be a great offensive lineman. Discipline and patience plays a part of that too, I I'm imagine. Okay, what separates the, the good coaches, okay, from the other guys? What do you, what separates the good coaches and then you get... The, you know, hey, this guy's a pretty good coach, or this guy's, you know, okay, just another guy. What's yeah, I think the, the best coaches that I have had were... Besides myself. Besides Bob, of course, which is, <laughs> you would fall into the great coach category. Um, I think the best coaches that I've had understand that not every player, not every person learns the same way. And so they have a high level of emotional intelligence to be able to see their, their athlete and to be able to understand, hey, this player, he learns best when I draw up on the board. Hey, this player learns best when I tell him what to do. 
hey, oh, this player learns best when I show him film of exactly what I want to see from him. This player learns best when I make him take notes in his notebook. Oh, this player learns best when I make him put flashcards together. Like understanding how to get the most out of your players comes down to learning what they learn in the manner of the best. Like how do they learn something the quickest? Um, I, I think that is so important. And I think the other part is understanding techniques can be different for different players but understanding how to take the technique that you want to see and fitting it to that player's skill sets. Because, you know, my pass set might look a little bit different than Mitchell Schwartz's pass set, than David Bakhtiari's pass set, but that's okay because there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. But how do I, as a coach, lean on my experience and help that player get better without just making him try to look like what I think he needs to look like? Because, there's a lot of different ways that you can pass that, that you can run block that can be very effective and finding the best way for that player, how that guy's bone structure is built, how that guy's athleticism is expressed in his body. I think those are all things that make a great coach. The, uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And, and the end result is the, is the product. And the end result is the production of the player, regardless of what it looks like. Your guy does not make the play. That's important. However, you do that. You know? I think that's a great point, Bob. I think one thing is offensive player, offensive players, offensive coaches, um, myself included. Sometimes we lose track of the main thing. And one of my favorite quotes is, "Keep the main thing the main thing." And as an offensive lineman, the main thing for me is not letting my dude make the tackle. Like in the end, would I love to pick him up? and slam him on the top of his head and jump on top of him and give him the people's elbow and stand over him and do one of these. But that's not going to make the difference of my quarterback being able to throw a touchdown if I just stand there and I block him and I lock him up. That's not going to really make the difference of my running back being able to hit the hole and be able to press and cut and then win at the second level against a linebacker or a safety. Like, that's the main thing. So I don't want to risk giving up my man making a play because I want to murder my guy. Like I want to do my job on every single play so that all those other skinny guys that have the hot girlfriends, they're able to do their jobs and score touchdowns. That's the main thing. Now, if I can do that and pancake my guy or humiliate my guy or wear my guy out, that's a great thing also. But don't forget what the main thing is as an offensive lineman. You got to block your guy. You got to do your job. Excellent. Excellent. The, uh, what advice uh, would you give to uh, – you've already given it. I'll, I'll come up with a, a better question for you. <laughs> what, which ways uh, – uh, what ways do you have to help offensive tackles in loud stadiums on the silent counts, okay? What operation that you go through – you know, we get into noisy stadiums. They can go play in Denver or you're in Oakland or you're in Seattle, which is a noisy stadium or city – what advice do you give the young tackles, okay, on the silent count? So I actually like the silent count better than I like the verbal count by the time my career was over because the way we did the silent count with our center, we were all on the same page, and I knew exactly he was going to snap it at an exact moment, and I could anticipate that moment. Sometimes with quarterbacks, when they're giving their verbal cadence, as much as they try to 
give the same cadence with their mouth. They tend to get excited sometimes, they'll slow it down sometimes, and it becomes difficult to anticipate exactly when they want that ball, especially if there's a blitz coming or if they're getting excited and the shot clock's running down or they see an uncovered receiver. And so you don't get that consistency with a verbal cadence, but with a silent count, you can get that, especially when you have a good center that's on the same page and that you practice with all those guys. And my favorite silent cadence always was one where the center would pick his head up and there was a pause between when the head came up and when the ball got snapped. Because what that allowed me to do was I was peeking to the inside and I was looking at the center's head. And when that center's head came up, now I had enough time to be able to look back out to my player. And in my mind, I was always timing exactly when the ball was snapped. So then I wouldn't even have to look inside to see when that ball was being snapped. So as soon as I saw the center's head come up, then I could look out at my player and then I could just go. And I never had to worry about the cadence being sped up. I never had to worry about my man moving. I never had to worry about him changing his technique or all of a sudden me missing a blitz because I had enough time after the center picked his head up to be able to look to the outfield and see what was happening. And so I always had that comfort when we were in the silent cadence that I was going to get off on time and that I wasn't going to be surprised with what the defense was doing. The silent counts that I don't like are ones that the ball gets snapped when the center is still picking his head up. Because a lot of times I'm looking inside and I'm starting to move as my head is moving and that throws off my equilibrium. When I'm going from looking inside to looking out here and I try to move back into my pass set at the same time, it always threw off my balance and equilibrium a little bit. So that was obviously what we would do if we were going on one. Obviously it was one head bob. But you can do a lot of variations of it. You could do the one head bob. You could do the two head bobs. You could do the one head bob with a turn to the left and then a snap. You could do the one head bob with a turn to the right and a snap. So you can do a lot of variations, but as long as we had the same pause between when that head came back to the middle and the ball was snapped, I was able to get off exactly perfect every time. And so we would say on one was just a head bob. We would say one uh, L or one R was if you picked it up and looked to the left or looked to the right. And then you'd have a Largo count, which would be head up. And then if, if the normal snap was one count, we would just double it. So uh, on one would be like this, snap. Uh, on Largo would be like this, don't snap, snap. So that was a really dangerous one for the defense because usually you don't see the head bob coming up and then a two count before the ball gets snapped. So we were almost always ahead of the defense when we went with the Largo. And then when we went from a Largo to a one, the defense always jumped off sides because they're so they're working so hard to try to get a bead on when the snap is coming up that you give them two Largos in a row. Now they're kind of anticipating that longer snap. And all of a sudden you go on one, you're ahead of them. But if they're anticipating it on one and all of a sudden you go on Largo, they're always in the backfield. And the good news was they usually jump and it was enough time for them to be offsides trying to get back when the ball was snapped. So now you get a free play. And on top of that, the defense is backing up and not ready to try to start rushing the quarterback. So I thought the way we did the silent count was really good. And I, I would encourage other offensive lines to kind of adapt that type of a silent count. And, and then it also, when you, when you, when they, you get off the ball, sometimes you're even a, a, a split here sooner when the ball's coming up, just right. It almost makes it look like you're, you're so fast that you're offside and you're not. Right. 
and, and the officials look at it and they they want it and they're not and they're not sure, so they don't do it. You know, they don't. <laughs> exactly right. It's really, really, really nice to watch that stuff. Because if you're looking at the ball from the sideline copy, really as an offensive tackle, especially, it's so important to get back because being ahead of those defensive ends is is the most important thing you do as an offensive lineman. So if you're watching that ball, you should really start moving the second that ball is moving in that center's hands. Like it shouldn't be now I go. It should be like the second that, that those fingers are starting to curl up on that center's hand, that's when you need to be moving backwards as an offensive tackle. You know, and you have some good centers. And I know JC is pretty good. He's really good with his yep. with all that, all those, those snaps and stuff. Okay. Uh, Go, go about your preparation uh, for the week. How did, did you prepare? Okay, you, you, the game's over. We go through the film stuff, you know what I mean? And now uh, you're starting from that point on, okay, to prepare for the week, the next game. What, what did you do from, okay, let's say our film session stopped at noontime on Monday. Okay, from that point on, what did you do? I kind of like to start from, like a 10,000 foot view, the big picture first, and then kind of narrow it down to more myopic focus as the week wore on. And so the first thing that I'm going to do on a Tuesday or a Monday is I'm going to watch just a couple games because I want to get a sense for how the defense plays. I want to get a sense for how they rotate their defensive ends. I want to get a sense for how they like to come in and play their sub packages, their third down packages. I kind of want to know like what the guy that I'm going to go across from does he get tired by the end of the game? Is he, you know, in great shape and I'm going to get his best stuff at the end. Like I just want to get an overall feel for things. And so after I watch a couple games, then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the pass rush cut up. So I'll probably go and I'll sort maybe the last four games and watch all those pass cut ups. Anything that is like more than uh, a three to go, you know, like, first, second, third down, and three or more. So it's not just a, a quick pass. It's more of a drop back type passing game. And so once I start doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my notebook and I'll write all the players that I see that line up over me and I'll write their number in the margin. And then I'm going to start logging all the pass rush moves that all of those guys are doing in those last four games. So then by the time I watch all those passes from the last four games, I've got a pretty good chart going of the defensive players I go against and all of the pass rush moves that they like to run. And so it'll give you a pretty good picture of the guys that you're going against and what they like to do and how they like to attack an offensive tackle. So then that gives me a really good idea when I show up on Wednesday for what I want my scout team guy to focus on that week and what are the sets or what are the change-ups that I'm going to employ that week to try to take away what my guy does best. And then as the week wears on, I'll usually try to watch an extra game every single day um, to try to get a little bit more familiar with the person I'm going against. Um, and then as I'm watching a full game, I want to see how my guy handles like a base block. How does my guy handle an outside zone? How does my guy handle uh, like a double team outside zone with the tight end? How does my guy handle a backside cutoff? Like what are all those things that you're going to see in the run game and how does the player you're going against try to handle those things so that once I'm practicing, 
I can work on those techniques that I'm going to employ on Sunday so that I'm basically playing the game four or five times before Sunday shows up. So for instance, when I was playing against Jason Taylor, he had those really long arms. He'd like to kind of stab in your chest and then he'd try to reach around and grab the back of your pad. Now his arms were a lot longer than mine, even though I was six, six and he was six, six, but I knew I didn't want to let him into my chest. So what I, I decided I wanted to do the week I prepare and practice against or play against him, I wanted to try to punch his hand when he'd reach his hand out. So I would never give him uh, an ability to get close enough to me to reach around and grab the back of my pad. And so what did I do that whole week? I had the scout team guy work on that long arm. And then I wanted to focus on that target that I was hitting all week so I could work on punching the hand. And then by the time Sunday came around, I'd practice that probably three or 400 reps going into the game. So I had confidence that I could try to employ that tactic that I wanted to go against Jason Taylor. And then part of that is the mental side of it where, all right, I know that after I frustrate him a few times with his main pass rush move, what's the next thing he's going to try to go to? What's the counter that he's going to try to go to when his first favorite move doesn't work? So just being ready for the curveball when you, you stop the main fastball, I think is also a really important part. And having that scouting report that you build yourself by logging everything that that player likes to do. I think it's really important because in your head, even though you're expecting his favorite moves, you got to be ready for that changeup because a lot of times guys can do a pretty good job. Like you go against Dwight Freedy, you're ready for that bull rush. You're ready for that spin inside, but you got to also be ready if he just plays it straight and tries to run off the field. Um, and you got to be willing to react to that. You know, you know, guys, I, uh, we go to practice, you know, in Cleveland and, uh, we got a lot of young kids sitting in the room. But I, so I come walking through the weight room and I come walking through the field house to go out on the practice field one day. And Joe's in there working his hands, okay, right? And we got a speed bag and we got a, a, one of those balls on the string and everything. And, you know, and here's a player that's been around 10 plus years. He's an all pro guy, okay? And he's still practicing, right? What he needs to do, okay, for that week. You know, talk about a, a good pro. I mean, that's always impressive as a coach to watch that and say, my God, you know what I mean? And in the meetings, right, the notes he's taking, you know what I mean? He may know exactly what I was talking about, but he was still writing it down. He still wrote it down for you young guys. Okay, pass protection. What do you think the most important aspect of pass protection is? You got to pick out one thing about pass protection. What is it? I would say balance is probably the most important thing. And I think the most important part of balance is having an ability to bend starting with your ankles. Everybody talks about knee benders versus waist benders, but where that starts is in your ankle. Because if you can't bend your ankle, if you can't get your, your ankle into that positive um, shin angle, where your foot is like this and your ankle is like this, you don't have the ability to bend your knees and you don't have the ability to bend your waist. If your ankles can only go like this, then it doesn't matter how much you bend your knees. You, you can bend your knees as far as you want, but then you're just going to fall over backwards. So being able to create that positive shin angle allows you to create leverage in your lower half. And it allows you to have balance to be able to react to whatever the defender does to you. And I think one thing too, that, is important to mention when 
you're a younger player, one thing to really work on is mobility in your hips. Because if you, if you have ever tried to stand on one leg, like your, your ankle joint is basically can, can move like this. You're, it's a hinge joint, your knee joint. It's just a hinge joint, but your hip is a ball and socket. It can move 360 degrees. And so to be able to have good balance, you need to be able to constantly shift and adjust your hip within your hip socket to be able to react to the different movements and the different situations that your lower body is going to be in throughout a pass set or throughout reacting to whatever that defensive lineman does to you. And that comes from your hips, but it starts in your ankles and having the proper bend to be able to have the proper center of gravity and balance throughout your lower half. And so working on that mobility in your hips is so crucial to being a player that has great balance. I think that's one thing that is completely overlooked and that I would love to see linemen start spending a lot more time on. Strength is good. Strength is important, but having the mobility in the hips will allow you to have the balance that you have to have. Now, as a, as, as a coming out of college, when, when you were coming out, okay, all the reports, all my evaluations on you, and mostly every guy that worked you out or went up to the workout, okay, and did the film study, said he's a really good athlete. He's a good athlete. Everybody put that down. He's an excellent athlete, superior athlete, you know, above the average athlete, all the good stuff, okay? You know, when you were preparing your body, were you working on your core strength to keep the balance? Was that a major thing? Was that more on your, your lower body leg strength, your foot quickness? Was that more important than you than the bench press and the curls? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you're an offensive lineman and you benched 100 pounds, but you were extremely strong in your core and you had a very strong squat and you had a very strong clean, power clean, hang clean, and you were explosive in your lower body, it wouldn't matter how much you bench because the bench press only matters if you have something that your back is resting against. Then you can use your upper body strength, right? If you're laying on a bench, the bench is stationary, it's on the ground and you're able to press against that. But if you don't have that bench, your core strength is what determines how strong you are because that is basically the bench is your core. It's your ability to, to brace and then press. But the ability to move human beings comes from your legs. It doesn't come from your arm strength. Now, do you want to have strong, a strong upper body? Yes, but the reason is probably different than people think. It's because then you're carrying more strength mass. You're carrying more body weight, which allows you to create more inertia. It has nothing to do with the strength of moving a person or stopping a person. That all comes from your legs because the leverage you create, starting with your ankle, then your knee, and then into your hips, that's what are actually moving a player. Like when you see a block happening, the block is the only thing your arms and your hands are doing is connecting your lower body to that defender that you're trying to move you're never doing this unless right at the end of a block you're going to finish a guy then maybe you're pushing him a little bit or you know if you're kind of holding on to your ass and pass pro and you're trying to push a guy by a quarterback you might push him a little bit but other than that the pushing with your arms has no relevance whatsoever to blocking somebody else that all comes from your legs that all comes from the ground um and so the bench press is almost an irrelevant 
exercise when it comes to measuring an offensive lineman's ability to move. Yeah, I tell I used to tell you guys, I said, the girls on the bench press tonight may get you a date, <laughs> but you ain't going to block anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and Joe, another thing about your body angles, you talked about the knee angles and the ankles, uh, you know, in your hips, you know what I mean? Joe had a really good way of lining up his body angles, the way the body was made to work, right? He didn't, like he was just demonstrating the bench press and he was going like this, but when Joe played, he never went like that. No. His thumbs were up and his elbows were in and he knew that that body, it was like that. That's how he played because that's the best, that's how your body's the strongest. You know, it's not like that, you know, so. Well, I think it's important too to mention, Bob, and hopefully people can see, like if, if, if my elbows are out like this, because your your elbow is a hinge joint too, right? If I'm blocking somebody like this and a defensive lineman, they're going to try to knock your hands off, right? They're going to hit you right here and your arm's probably going to get knocked off because you can't absorb the hit from a defensive lineman when your arms are like this. But if your arms are like this and a defensive lineman hits you, you can stay connected and stay uh, grabbing onto the, the shoulder pads of the defender and because you're allowed to absorb that hit because the hinge now is facing up, right? So if I've got a good latch on somebody and they're hitting me like this, I can keep my attachment to that other player because of the way the hinge is. But as soon as you do this, you don't have that ability anymore. And a lot of times that's how they're going to knock your arms off. So in addition to this being a much stronger um, way to connect yourself to the defensive lineman, which is what you're doing here. You're cut, like I mentioned before, you're trying to connect your lower body to the defensive lineman when you're blocking with your arms. That's what this is, is the connection. And having the hinge facing up like that is important to be able to knock off or defend yourself against a defensive lineman who's trying to hit you and knock your hands off. But as soon as you go like this, his ability to knock you off, you lose your shock absorbers. Now, the other thing, Joe, go back to that, that triangle that you, you Right, right. No, no, the other way. With your elbow, t- up, thumbs up. No, thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, and the elbows. Now, the guy hit your elbow. So, if right, right there. Now, if I drew a line from Joe's shoulder to the top of his fingers, okay, that's a triangle. That's the strongest thing known to man. Right? If I'm building something, that's the strongest thing that you can put in construction that's on the planet. You just created that with your arms. Right. And Joe, that's what he's going to use. He's going to figure out how to use that. He's going to use it to connect himself right to the defender. Right. Great coaching point. The uh, what, what? Why does the offensive tackles always, I don't say always, why do the offensive tackles have a tendency to turn too soon in pass protection? When should the tackle turn in pass protection? Yeah, so typically an offensive tackle is going to turn, they're going to open their hips, they're going to open their shoulders too soon because they get nervous and scared that that defensive lineman is ahead of them and they got to turn and open up and run and they're just going to try to run them past the quarterback. You've got to fight that urge and you've got to wait until it hurts. That's what I would say. You've got to keep setting until it feels like it hurts because as soon as you turn and open yourself, um, you now have no ability to react to an inside move. And also a lot of times what happens is when, when you turn, you pivot on your inside foot and you drop your outside foot. And then now your own, the only thing you can do is just try to hope 
and press and run with that guy. Whereas if you take one extra kick and a post, and then now you're, you're, even if the guy is right at your hip, when you're in that position, you're still able to use your feet to press against the defensive lineman. So you still have strength in that position. And I think that's important to mention when you're kick sliding, one thing that I would always look for in my kick slide to feel good about what I'm doing with my inside foot is I always wanted to pull my inside foot back far enough that in my set, my ankle was always at a 90 degree angle or even smaller, because if your ankle is ever beyond 90 degrees on your inside post leg, when you're pass setting, you're not able to use that leg for strength anymore. And now it's become a single leg activity. Pass protection should be a double leg activity because you need both legs in the ground and you need strength from both legs to be able to stop a defensive lineman, right? And the only way you can do that is you're setting back and at the point of contact, you're getting both feet in the ground and then you're fighting the defensive lineman. If you see that inside ankle and it's wider than a 90 degrees, I don't care how strong you are, you have no ability to use the strength in that leg. Think about it if you were squatting. If you were squatting, with one leg and you had more than a 90 degree angle, you would not be able to use any of your quad, any of your butt, any of your hamstring strength. You lose that entire leg. And so having that ability to tuck and suck under that inside leg when you're past setting is so important for the ability of using the strength in your inside leg. You're always gonna have that outside leg strength, right? Because of where it is from an angle standpoint. When you look at the angle of that knee, that hip, that ankle, like you have that with your outside leg, but the inside leg, that's the difference maker. And when to turn, that was the other part of the question. When to turn, you turn when he, as a defender, gets beyond where your, your hip is. So like if you were looking at a, a football player like straight down and you were looking at like the horizontal hash marks, if you're standing in the hash mark and that defender now is beyond your hip, that's when you would, you would want to turn. But the key is that you want, you, you never just want to pivot on your inside foot. You want to be able to step or kick with your outside foot and kick slide with your inside foot. And then the open needs to happen gradually. You never want to pivot and drop and open your outside foot like you're in a bucket. Good, good, good points. Okay. Vertical set versus angle setting. You use both. How much did you mix it up and change up your sets? How many, you know, I, I know you like the vertical set. Okay. Never, Joe, it, like Joe was saying earlier, if, if your player is blocking that guy, right, even though it may not be the technique that you're trying to teach him, then don't screw with the guy. <laughs> Don't mess him up as a coach, right? This, that's the way he does it. Let him do it that way. As long as that guy ain't getting that guy over there, that's all good. <laughs> Your thought process of, of, of vertical setting versus angle setting, and then how many different assets did you have in your toolbox that you could, hey, I can, if this one ain't working, I can pull this one out and use this one. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, I think having as big of a tool belt as possible with as many different pass sets in it is, is beneficial. Um, obviously it takes time to learn it and being proficient. So maybe you don't wanna have every pass set under the sun 
available to you right away until you feel comfortable. But I think working on all of them in practice is a really smart way to attack it and approach it. Um, and then as you feel comfortable, you can start employing them in the game. But I think most tackles should have an angle set. And I know some guys, if your quarterback doesn't drop very deep, if you want to, if you want to emphasize firmness of the pocket up front over depth of the pocket, then maybe you could be only an angle setter. You know, that was the old Howard mud. Like he wanted jump setters. He wanted angle setters, the Dante Skarnecchia from the Patriots when Brady was there. Like those guys wanted to be firm on the line of scrimmage. They wanted to be, uh, to give the quarterback width and, and space in the pocket. But if a guy was going to try to run around them, even if they got to nine yards, it didn't matter because the quarterback wasn't going to be that deep. So some of it depends on where your quarterback is going to set up. Um, but I think having a lot of sets in your tool belt is really helpful because especially in those situations where you're going against a guy who maybe is better than you at certain things. Like when I was facing a guy who was maybe a really strong bull rusher, I didn't want to vertical set all that much because vertical setting puts you really close to the quarterback and you have less room for error. You have so much less margin of error when you do get bull rushed because you really only would get one hop from where you were if you were a vertical setter before you were in the quarterback's lap. Whereas if you're an angle setter, uh, once you get bull rushed, you probably have at least two or three hops before you're anywhere near the quarterback. So you've got a lot more room for air when you're getting bull rushed, when you're angle setting somebody. But if I had a skinny guy who wasn't very good as a bull rusher, but I knew he could beat me around the edge or he could beat me to the inside, then I would probably employ more of a vertical set because that gave me a better ability to defend against the inside move. And it gave me a, a better ability to strength, uh, to stretch the length of the pocket to nine, 10 plus yards because I was vertical and I wasn't forced to take an angle and then round that angle once I made contact with that player. So the sets that I took and I tried to favor depended a lot on the individual matchup I was going against, but also the protection that we were employing on that certain play. So if I knew the slide was coming to my direction, if you're running you know, your basic two jet type protection, slide protection where we're going to a will, and I know my will is out there. I know my center's coming with me and we got a two on three. I can take an angle. I can take a jump. I can take a three-step jump. Like I've got the world as my oyster because I don't have to worry about games. I don't have to worry about inside moves. And all I have to worry about is making sure I don't let my guy bull rush me or beat me around the edge. So it's, a, it's about finding the right set for the protection and the opponent. As far as the number of sets that I had, um, vertical set, which is used man protection, I would use it a lot of times against a guy who's maybe a skinnier player, more of an athletic player that I was worried about him beating me around the edge or beating me to the inside. A guy like a Dwight Freeney, who's really good with a spin move. And I don't want to give him a lot of space between me and the, and the guard. Um, if I was worried about a stunt and I was on the man side of a protection, that's a great opportunity to use a, a vertical set or at least a mostly vertical set. Um, when your sidebar is when you're dealing with twists, Squareness is more important than verticality, I think, because when you turn your shoulders, that's when you give the defensive lineman the ability to get to your hip, which is what you don't want. That's how they win when they're twisting, is if you let that defensive tackle get to your hip, it's over, right? But squareness beats that. And vertical and square, there's basically no room for those guys to get in there. Um, when I would use the angle set was, like I said, if I knew a slide was coming at me, if I knew that this guy I was going against was a really good bull rusher. I didn't have to worry as much 
about a twist inside. And then the short sets were great changeups. Like if I saw that throughout the course of a game, especially towards the second half, if I had a defensive lineman who was starting to get a beat on my, my vertical set or my angle set, and I, I felt that he was really timing me up and the rhythm of my set he, he had figured out where he could get into his fourth step. And then he knew he could put his, his fourth foot in the ground and then he could attack me. I wanted to change that up and I wanted to make sure that I was messing with his rhythm and timing. And there's a lot of pass rushers out there, especially you'll see pass rushers that put their outside foot back in their stance. Those guys are a lot of time rhythm pass rushers, right? Because if they put their outside foot back, that means they can either come inside on their first step or their fourth step or, or their third step. So if I could attack them when they had their inside foot in the ground, I knew that they couldn't go to the inside on me. So if I saw a guy that he had his outside foot back, I knew that on one kick, if he put that next foot in the ground, he wasn't going inside on two. He could go inside on three, but he couldn't go inside on four. And so it, it gave me a really good ability to disrupt his timing and to use like what I would call a three-step short, which is another pass set that I would use where I would take one kick off the ball to make it look like I was vertical setting. And then my third step would be at the defender and I'd be aggressively jump setting him. And that was really good for disrupting timing, especially like I mentioned for a defensive player that had their outside foot back. I knew that I could take one kick back. And if he didn't come inside, by the time I started jump setting him, it would time up with his inside foot being in the ground and that he wouldn't be able to beat me to the inside before he realized what was happening to him. Because the number one risk of a short set or a three-step short set is the inside move, right? Because I'm moving at the defender at the same time that he's going to the inside. So it doesn't give you as much time to react. Um, so watching your defender and, and picking up on his tendencies, picking up on his rhythm is really important for disrupting that rhythm and disrupting his timing as a pass rusher, which a lot of times can um, disrupt his confidence in his ability to beat you. Now, what happens if he had his inside foot back? How would you look at that piece? So the inside foot back is a little bit more dangerous to short set because obviously, and I may have said it wrong earlier. I can't remember what I was saying, but if your inside foot is back as a pass rusher, they can come inside right now. They don't have to take any steps before they can go to the inside. They come um, on zero. Right. Zero. So they can go inside on zero or two. Um, and so you had to be a little bit more careful and you had to play off the width of the pass rusher. So if a defender's got his inside foot back and he's lined up tight on me, I better be really careful and I better be setting off the ball because that inside move might be coming right now, especially if I'm on the man side of a protection, he might be coming in right away. Now, if he's wider, I know it's, it's going to be harder for him to make an inside move from a wider alignment. So I have a little bit more room to work with. Um, but inside foot back means he's either going to come inside now or if he takes one step up the field, I know he's got to take another step in the ground before he can move to the inside. So it's all about understanding like when their inside foot's in the ground, they can't make an inside move. They have to get their outside foot in the ground to make an inside move and understanding how that affects what the pass it is that I can take so that I'm not moving at the defender while he has his outside foot in the ground, able to push off to the inside. So it's a timing that you created for yourself. Is that 
ending involved and all that. The other thing, uh, I got some some shots of you, you know, with your eyes and coming to the line of scrimmage, okay, and you were looking to the right. I always remember the head coach saying, why is he looking over there? His guy's over there. So this is the last thing he looks at. He's looking at the field. He's seeing the field. He's seeing the safety in the middle. He's seeing the strong safety over there. I said, well, you've got the safety in the middle and a strong safety over there. And the linebacker's normal, you know, like these normal linebacker alignment. I said, he probably knows that that defensive end isn't coming inside. Don't you think that's important for the left tackle to know that? I mean, and would, would that be a, a, a true assessment of what you were doing with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really important to gather as much information as you can pre-snap to understand what are the things that my defender can do to me and then how do I attack him so that he can't beat me with those things. Like going into a game after you've taken your notes and you've logged everything that this defensive player you're going against can do. Like you have this big box of stuff that they can possibly do, right? Which makes it a little bit tougher as an offensive lineman because if they can do anything they want to you, like you're just reacting and you don't have as many things right on the tip of your tongue and your brain that you're ready to react to. But if you walk to the line of scrimmage, you're like a CIA agent who's trying to gather information to see, all right, where is the threat coming from, right? So you're walking the line of scrimmage, you see the rotation of the safeties is away from you. You know, you're probably thinking that, all right, I'm likely not going to get that guy coming to the inside because he's got responsibility up the field in that gap. So you're starting to take that huge box of stuff he can do, and you're starting to cross off some of those things that he can't do anymore. And that gives you more freedom and confidence to know, all right, now I can be more aggressive in my set here. Okay, now I, I got to be careful because this defense is telling me right now from what I'm seeing in the secondary, from the linebackers, from the shift of the defensive line, from the defensive linemen talking to each other, trying to organize a twist or a stunt. Like, I got to be re ready and alert for – maybe some type of a twist game that's happening inside, or I got to be ready for my defensive end. He's got a free go to go wherever he wants because he's protected by a linebacker or he's protected by a safety rotation. So it's gathering all that information you can to try to eliminate what are the possibilities of this defensive lineman? What is he allowed to do on this play? And then how do I need to be ready to react if he does those things? So it was always a game of, all right, I'm walking the line of scrimmage. What are the things he can do and what am I going to do if that happens? That allows you to speed up your reaction time just a split second, which a lot of times is the difference between blocking your guy and looking good and giving up that sack fumble where your quarterback's getting carried off the field in the stretcher. Now, take us through the process, Joe. You're in the huddle and, the, and you're in the huddle. You finish the last play, okay? And there's a point in time when you need to get rid of that play. Whether you won or you lost it, Okay. And the quarterback's getting ready to call the next play. When is that point in time you say, okay, this play is done. He's going to give us our next play. And when he gives you that play, what is your thought process as, you, as he's giving you the play? Okay. Now, from that point on, take us right through to the snap. So everybody always talks about cornerbacks have to have a short memory, right? Because you get beat by, by a, a touchdown pass. You got to be able to wipe that clean and focus on the next play. Well, offensive linemen are the same way, right? You can't let one sack 
trickle down to two sacks to being all of a sudden a terrible game. Like you've got to compartmentalize 68 individual plays in a game and they are related, but you can't let one play affect the next play. And so for me, the way my process went throughout a game is we would have the play and then I would quick look up to the replay board and I wanted to see what happened from maybe a bigger picture standpoint a lot of times, but also I wanted to see my own technique and see what the defense did because sometimes things happen so quickly that you're reacting you think you knew what happened, but it didn't happen exactly like you thought it happened, especially with your own technique. So I would quick look up at the video board and try to get an idea of a self-evaluation. How was my technique on that play? What would I have done differently? Did it happen exactly the way I thought it happened? And as soon as that was over, I would wipe that clean from my memory. And now I'm in the huddle and now I'm looking at the down and distance. I'm looking at the personnel that's coming in the game and I'm looking at the situation and I'm reflecting back on the notes that I took that week thinking about, all right, it's third and six plus. I see that they've just marched their best pass rusher in the game who's been sipping water over there on first and second down while I've been busting my ass. And now he's fresh and he's ready to go. In my notes, when this guy came in the game and it was third and six and the game was on the line, he's got to have a pass rush move. He's going to swim to the inside every time. So now my, my brain is thinking even before the play is, is called, it's probably going to be a pass play. I'm going against number 92. He's probably going to swim to the inside. I want to make sure that I'm very square I'll, because that's how I stop the swim move to the inside. I want to make sure I'm not leaning. I want to make sure my head's out of the block and I'm going to be able to handle this, right? And if I go out there and that player doesn't give me his best move like I anticipated, I'm good enough to be able to react to that secondary move. And I'm already in really good position from a technique standpoint that the reaction to that move is no problem. The problem happens is if it's third and six and I'm going to the line of scrimmage and I don't know anything about this guy. That's why I always hated preseason because they're rolling out guys and dudes that I've never seen before. I don't know what his best move is. It's third and six and we're on the 32 yard line and we need to get a first down to win the game. I got no idea who this guy is or what he likes to do. That's the worst case scenario because then his best move is going against purely me reacting to it. I never want to be in that situation. I want to be anticipating his best move before he makes it so that I can react and fall back on my practice and my preparation and be ready to handle that. And if he goes to the second move, I'm okay too, because that's not his best move. You know, he's trying to beat me with his second pitch. And I know that I'm good enough to react and be able to block that. So even before the play is called, I'm thinking about situationally who's in the game, what the play call probably is going to be. And then what that player is going to try to do from a pass rush standpoint to me. And then the ball snapped and you go play. You go play ball. And then you just react and reflect <laughs> and uh, fall back on your coaching and, uh, and <laughs> practicing. The, uh, okay, now give us the communication. Uh, now you played next to Joe for four years, boss. Okay. And, and Joe's a, a good football player, Joe Petonio, people that you don't know, Joe's a left, all pro left guard at Cleveland. So they got two all pros playing next to each other. Okay, the, uh, the communication that you guys would use to pick up a twist, whether it was an ET, a, T, a TE, wherever that situation, you know, what was the communication that you guys did at that point? Yeah, so the, the words that you use aren't as critical as just making sure you're on the same page, right? And so that's why you were talking about before, I'm looking all over the place before the ball is snapped. I'm not necessarily looking at my defensive end. So when I'm watching film, 
I would watch situationally when they like to twist. And a lot of times defenses will, will give their defensive linemen in certain situations the ability to call their own games. They're allowed to call their own twists, right? And so that has to get organized, right? So this is one of the reasons I love no huddle is because I got to just stand on the line of scrimmage and I got to watch the defensive linemen try to organize their twists. So if we went in and in, in, in the game, we said, all right, if it's third and four plus, they're going to put in this blitz package or they're going to put in this personnel package of pass rushers. And a lot of times they give them the leeway to call their own stunts. And when they call their own stunts, I'm not necessarily stealing their signals, but I know if that defensive tackle is talking to that defensive end, trying to organize a twist, he's probably not asking them what he's having for dinner tonight or where he's going to grab beers after the game. He's probably trying to organize an ET or a TE. And in that case, I'm going to have some communication with Joel, my left guard, to tell him, hey, watch out for the twist. So a lot of times we just say something simple as, hey, alert, 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 you know. And it was just that simple reminder that kept it fresh in your mind so that both of you were making sure that you were setting for that twist in a, in a perfect square manner. The guard was aggressive. He was on the ball. The tackle was getting off the ball so that the defensive tackle wasn't able to split you. He wasn't able to get to the defensive uh, or the offensive tackle's hip. It was on, it was on me. If it was an ET to be able to be aggressive when that end came into the inside to knock him back into the line of scrimmage so that he couldn't pick Joel if Joel was tied up with the, with the uh, defensive tackle. So it was all about that pre-snap visually seeing those guys talking, communicating, and then communicating to my guard they watch the twist. The, uh, and, and for you guys, uh, the, the number of coaching points that you guys are getting here is absolutely phenomenal for you young guys, young coaches, and even the old guys like myself. Okay. Uh, what target, uh, when, what target were your eyes at once the ball was snapped? Now, did you use a small target on a defensive line? Uh, did you have, uh, did you want to see the whole picture? Or were you focusing in on a, a certain target on the defender, right? Wherever that target went, your feet went. Or were you focused on the pitcher itself and you had to feel the inside guy, even though you were looking at the outside guy? How do you? Yeah, I would say um, in general, my target kind of changed depending on what the play was. But if you're talking just general, general pass protection, and I knew it was kind of that man pass protection situation um, the target could change a little bit depending on what that player liked to do like if you get a guy who's a big swim move guy for me my target would kind of be um, basically where that bicep was um, but I never thought about focusing my eyes directly on that I, I still kind of wanted to see the picture but I, but I definitely, as I got to the line of scrimmage and I was getting into my sets, I, I was kind of picking out a general area on that player. And I knew that if this was a guy that was a heavy inside rush guy, my general area of focus was a little bit tighter because I needed to be able to be able to react to the inside move quicker. If it was more of an outside up the field guy, maybe my target was with my eyes was generally a little bit wider. Um, but I was just kind of seeing the whole picture of the defender really, because I, I, 
never was able to really like focus in my, my brain on one thing because I was usually trying to see everything that was happening and trying to absorb and calculate all those things at one time. Cause I knew that, you know, what the defensive lineman, obviously I'm not looking at them and I, I'm mostly feeling the defensive tackle, but I'm still kind of with my peripheral vision, seeing what's happening in the inside. Cause that's going to give me information to what this guy is doing. You know, like if everybody vacates in here, obviously now I'm getting ready to, uh, if everything vacates to the inside, obviously now I'm getting ready to have my one-on-one -on -one with this guy and my focus is starting to narrow a little bit on this player. And now I'm starting to think about the one-on-one -on -one matchup and the things that I've been doing in practice to be ready for his best pass rush moves. But I'm still kind of feeling this in here just in case something's coming back, like they're running some type of TT or three-man game or you're getting some type of blitz. But as the rush is going on and I'm getting closer to blocking that defensive end, I'm – not focusing my eyes or my peripheral vision really anymore on the stuff that's happening in here. And obviously this hand has to start getting ready for contact. Um, and then it's more a factor of, all right, where am I trying to with my hands target on this opponent versus where my eyes are? So would it be safe? Would you, it would change if you're on the man side, as opposed to when you're on the slide side. Exactly. The man side, you're, you're obviously tighter with your aiming points, whether that be your hands or your eyes, because you're responsible if he goes inside or you're responsible if he goes off the field. When you're on the slide side and now you're sliding to a defender beyond the defensive end, you know that your guard is coming with you probably and your center is coming with you. So if your man makes an inside move, now you're able to pass it off. So my, now my eyes are are probably wandering a little bit wider to that will linebacker, the Sam to the free safety, to whoever's out here that I would be responsible for. So now you're kind of peeking a little bit more out there and making sure that you're aware of what's happening beyond just where the defensive end is. So it definitely changes depending on a man versus a slide protection and based on where your opponents are and where the guys that you're responsible are. Part two of this will be coming up tomorrow. Again, go to Lauren's First and Goal Clinic to check out our lineup of offensive line coaches there. I believe we have 18 of them scheduled for the clinic, which starts the third. That's lfgf2022.coachesclinic.com. And for those of you waiting for the cool clinic, that will be coming up, and we'll start selling that one next week. Our keynote speaker to kick things off will be John Gruden and his topic is going to be what I look for when hiring an offensive line coach. We have the Super Bowl champion offensive line coach, the college football national champion offensive line coach, and the CFL Grey Cup champion offensive line coach as the headliners for this one with some other great coaches from the NFL and college football as well.